0: Welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and to our weekly program, Soundbites, produced here at WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on the Marvel Public Radio, WSTL 90.7 FM. Soundbites, our weekly look at our food system, farming, and the future of our environment. Uh, and reminding you, before we jump into our conversation here about uh, what antibiotics and animal feed may be doing to us as human beings, the, the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. And remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. It belongs to you, and money comes back in the end. More information, www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org, their banner, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. So we are looking at uh, a report coming out that came out about antibiotics and animal feed, how it may affect Um, Human beings, 93% of physicians polled, uh, were deeply concerned that there may be a direct effect on our antibiotic resistance uh, in human beings because of the food that we consume uh, that has a lot of antibiotics in it. Uh, And we are joined here uh, in this conversation, Matthew Wellington's in studio. He's campaign organizer at the Maryland Public Interest Research Group. Marilyn Perg, and Dr. Tyler Simmet is with us, practicing physician and president of the Maryland State Medical Society, MEDCAI, and Dr. Simit, Matthew Wellington, welcome. Good to have you both with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.
0: And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can write to us here, talk at steinershow.org. Uh, you can log on to our Facebook pages, tweet me at Mark Steiner, 410-319-8888, because this is something that is of a real concern to all of us. But Who would like to begin? You you published this report, right? Marilyn Perg?
1: Marilyn Perg released it um, in union with Consumer Reports. It's a poll of doctors um, that expresses their concern about first antibiotic resistance and then also uh, the overuse of antibiotics in animal farms.
0: So um, and and this is a very controversial subject and 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 we've had the meat industry on here before and and we'll continue to have that voice in this program. But it's uh, Dr. Simon. I, I, I wonder just you know, to t- talk a bit about this. I mean, because we hear a lot about kind of overuse of antibiotics by human beings that lower our resistance when we overuse them for everything that goes wrong. But this is something different that concerns the medical uh, world.
2: Absolutely. And we don't really see it as that controversial. We feel that you use antibiotics and use drugs when you have a diagnosis, when you know something's wrong. Eighty percent of doctors are now aware that they want to limit the use of antibiotics, decrease it. But now we're finding that you can get things in a fillet of fish that you can't get from your doctor's office. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not sure that's not funny, but, I mean, that's a good way to put it. Got you. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll I'll echo that as well. Um, I think that antibiotics, of course, are a pillar of modern medicine Um, But 70% of medically important antibiotics and 80% of all antibiotics in general are sold for use in the United States to food animals, typically uh, to promote the rate at which they gain weight and to prevent disease caused by uh, often unsanitary and unhealthy conditions. And then that leads to the development of more antibiotic-resistant superbugs, which are bacteria that are resistant to one or more classes of the drugs. And then people get exposed to that in a number of ways. Uh, the U.S. Center for Disease Control recently estimated that about 2 million people a year in the United States get sick from antibiotic-resistant infections, and 23,000 of them die. So this is a widespread issue.
0: But you can't say all 23,000 of them died or, got, or people got sick because they, there was a direct link between the antibiotics used that we use and the ones that are used in
1: animal feed, can mm-hmm. you? So it's difficult to say this because of a lack of data. Um, It's difficult to determine which percentage is caused by X and which percentage is caused by Y because farms are not required to report how many antibiotics they use and for what purpose. Um, So without that data, we can not definitively say um, this was caused by this and this was caused by this, but every one who's looked at this issue in the medical world, major public health organizations like the World Health Organization, the Center for Disease Control, the American Medical Association. And now with this poll, regular doctors and nurses and health professionals that are on the front lines of it all think that the link is um, clear that antibiotic resistance is propagated by the overuse of antibiotics in animal farms, and that people getting infected with antibiotic-resistant infections is on the rise because of that.
0: So talk a bit about the research and the literature you know about Dr. Simmet, that, may, that tries to make these connections.
1: Well, actually, I just wanted to
2: share some of my experience uh, to reinforce what he was saying. Please do, please do. First is that the resistance is individual. The people who take more antibiotics themselves and get more antibiotics in different ways develop resistant bacteria on their bodies. Um, the second thing is we all see in practice that we're using two antibiotics for things that we used to use one antibiotic for in the hospital, we're expecting pneumococcus, something that used to be very simple and be killed with any antibiotic, now requiring more serious antibiotics, multiple antibiotics, and the people who come in with what we call partially treated infections, infections that look like an infection but may or may not be full-blown, is increasing. And some of it is that people take antibiotics that they have left over, and some of it is that um, they're getting antibiotics to other places. So it is a changed picture.
1: And just to add in, the purpose of this report was to try to establish what first the medical community um, thinks about the issue of antibiotic resistance, if they're concerned about it, and if they're concerned about the use of antibiotics on healthy animals in livestock for things like growth promotion and disease prevention. And just to outline some of the findings really quickly. So first, um, which you had mentioned in the beginning, the overwhelming majority of doctors, 93%, um, expressed concern about the common meat industry practice of administering antibiotics uh, in low, d- low doses in feed to animals that aren't sick for things like growth promotion and disease prevention. Um, additionally, the poll found 97% of doctors expressed concern about the growing problem of antibiotic-resistant infections. Um, and then, furthermore, just to include a couple of other interesting and um, findings. Well, first, 85% of doctors report that one or more of their patients had had either a presumed or a confirmed case of multidrug-resistant infection in the past 12 months. Uh, Of those doctors that treated either a confirmed or a suspected case of a multidrug-resistant infection, 35% had a patient that either died or suffered serious consequences from the illness. And that number gets even higher for uh, doctors that work in both outpatient and hospital settings. And Dr. Simmet. Uh, mentioned in the beginning, 80% of doctors polled um, agreed that their practice or the hospital they work for is actively trying to minimize the inappropriate prescribing of antibiotics to their patients. So the and medical community is... major
2: groups trying to convince doctors not to give mm-hmm. antibiotics just because the patients want them. Mm-hmm. The American Academy of Pediatrics is working to limit the use of antibiotics in children to avoid using them when they have viruses, sore throats, coughs, colds, runny noses, things that don't need it, and the Choosing Wisely campaign is an initiative of the American Board of Internal Medicine. And they're also going out and telling doctors, limit your use to when it's medically necessary because otherwise it won't be there. Mm-hmm. That's why what PERG is doing is so important. If we're trying to limit the use in the smaller percentage, 30% of the use of antibiotics, no matter how much we limit it, the exposures are going to be there.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, every time I have this conversation, I think about my father who was a physician. And even in the 50s and 60s and 70s, when he was at the height of his practice, um, and he practiced almost until the day he died, when <laughs> he was in his late 80s. But, but he always made this point. He refused to give antibiotics out. Mm-hmm. Even then, he was saying, "This is going <laughs> to, it's dangerous." And I, I <laughs> you know, so I, I think now we're seeing the research come out to kind of say, that kind of his intuitive science was was maybe right. But, but I wonder, you know, when we look at studies like. Uh, the, in the New England Journal of Medicine in, in, in 2002, uh, they had a study that showed that, uh, uh, that cipro-resistant bacteria that, uh, that, that, that people got from eating pork contaminated with salmonella, um, uh, that, that, this, that, that, they, that they tied it to that. And another one uh, from the same journal uh, a couple of years before found that 20% of all ground meat in supermarkets contained salmonella. Um, and, uh, and 84% was resistant to at least one form of antibiotic. So, uh, Dr. Simon, I mean, this is, this is part of the problem, though. I mean, we, there are these reports and studies have been done that create these links after the fact in terms of studying the meat and studying what goes on, but because of the restrictions, it's been really difficult to kind of make a definitive link to say, yes, this is fact.
2: There's not a direct link, but there's evidence over all of what's going on. We know that 20 years ago, 96 to 97 percent of all pneumococcus was susceptible and would re- respond to penicillin. Now it's about 15 percent. Can wow. we say it's this antibiotic wow. mm-hmm. now? No, we, but we know over the years the constant use of antibiotics has had its effect.
1: Mm-hmm. There was a great frontline special about this issue recently. Right, right. And uh, that was one of the problems that they tried to tackle. He look, they looked at. Um, Different studies going on from Arizona to Pennsylvania trying to link the uh, antibiotic resistant infections directly from this animal to this human. Uh, And the constant problem that came up was the lack of data, um, was the lack of use data from the farming operations. Uh, But one thing is pretty clear, I think, in the medical community, and Dr. Simmet could probably speak um, better to this than I do, but we know that if we use antibiotics in this way, Um, as they are used in low doses in animal farms, um, the bacteria can develop resistance. It's just the nature of the bacteria. They will develop uh, resistance because the weaker bacteria is wiped out and their genes um, alter themselves to become resistant to bacteria. And then once those resistant superbugs are introduced into the environment, it's really not, not an issue of I can... Get my way out of this just by shopping wisely or anything like that. Once they're introduced, they're introduced into the environment. So, well, so
0: as a physician, how do you react to this, Dr. Simmons? I mean, but well, what's to be done? Both Well, let me start just medically, but what, beyond that.
2: Well, there are two, two different ways we have to attach, attack this. One is at the doctor's level and educate our doctors to use antibiotics appropriately. Um, number two is on the national level. Congress has to preserve antibiotics for medical treatment, not for financial reasons, not for growing bigger animals. And the FDA needs to restrict the use of antibiotics in the case of sickness. The FDA is supposed to regulate drugs, and if they're available because you can grow a bigger chicken, a bigger cow, um, get more pork if you give antibiotics, well, you're creating bigger animals that are unhealthier. There's a bill coming up called the Preservation of Antibiotics for Medical Treatment Act, PAMTA that Congress needs to look at seriously and and get working on, because that will make a huge difference in preserving things, preserving medications for the right reasons.
0: But clearly, I mean, two things here that, that strike me, and, and, and Matthew said, one is that um, this will be very difficult because there will be huge resistance um, from both the meat industry and huge resistance from the pharmaceutical industry, which makes you 80% of their sales to agriculture, and to say we have to stop this is a major, mm-hmm. a capital question, um, and the other is 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 the is the smoking gun, which I'll we'll come to next. But yeah, just I on can the politics. I can first. definitely when that, when chime in on this.
2: We're saying use it appropriately. Mm-hmm. And I, I can don't treat every animal when one, when one animal is sick. Mm-hmm. Got okay, so that's that was an important point, Doctor Simmons, you just made.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And I can chime in on um, how we're approaching kind of the political sphere on this. So. We know that the Obama administration has the issue of antibiotic resistance on their radar. Uh, last um, last month, this fall in September, the Obama administration issued an executive order uh, to tackle antibiotic resistance. The order did not, however, require a halt to the overuse of antibiotics in animal farms. Uh, the administration did at that time, though, announce that they're going to be unveiling a national action plan on antibiotic resistance in February of 2015. So we think that If we can demonstrate the broad and overwhelming support in the medical community, in doctors and nurses and health professionals that are seeing this uh, public health crisis develop firsthand right in front of them, if we can demonstrate that concern, which we have, nine out of 10 doctors polled in this survey that are on the front lines of this think that antibiotics should not be misused on animals that aren't sick. And we think that the Obama administration needs to listen to the right people on this.
0: So the question is not antibiotics, it's not a question of antibiotics not being used at
1: all. It's Mm -hmm. a question of being misused and how they're used. Exactly, yeah. And the quantities that they're used. Exactly. We we want antibiotics to be protected and used um, for the right reasons, not on animals that aren't sick for things like speeding the rate at which they gain weight or... Uh, preventing disease caused by just really unsanitary and unhealthy conditions. Well
2: given <coughs> pardon me. There they're a prescription for people, they should be a prescription for animals. Mm. Right.
0: Uh but the other part of this is has to do, it seems to me, with I mean there are other there are companies I think in the meat industry who are who are taking this seriously <coughs> and who are cutting back. I mean Purdue's made its announcements as of well course. as others about yeah. about cutting back. Um because I think one is consumer pressure, but other may be the science as well. Um, but for the science to understand it, people have to be allowed to take their research beyond the laboratory and study in the connection between what somebody ate and what diseases they got, or how the antibiotic resistance may be related to that uh, pork or meat that you're eating. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that I mean that that's part of the issue as well.
1: Yeah, of course, that's the fundamental kind of barrier in this. Um, and you're right; Purdue's recent decision to go antibiotic-free in its chickens. Uh, Healthy Chickens is a huge step forward. Uh, Major institutions like hospitals and restaurants (coughs) Mm -hmm. are really moving towards uh, serving antibiotic-free meat. And we're reaching out to some of those folks as well in the restaurant community and the food community uh, to show their support on this. Um, And then consumers too. From a Consumer Reports um, poll uh, back in 2012, 86% of consumers uh, said that they want to be able to buy meat and poultry without antibiotics at their local supermarkets. So, consumer pressure is definitely a part of it, and I think that the Purdue decision is going to influence um, some more on the industry side. So what 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 uh, Dr. Simmons, before we uh,
0: let you all go, t- tell me a bit about where this um, um, where this bill is going in Congress and when's it, when it's coming up, and what your group is doing with it?
2: We're just getting started at looking at it because the, re- the calls were for voluntary um, oversight. We think there oversight should be required, and these bills, the Preservation of Antibiotics for Medical Treatment Act would limit drug use to diagnoses. Once you know it's wrong, you treat it. Um, just getting up, it has a sponsor. I'm not sure how many co-sponsors yet, but um, the momentum is building. People are interested. You can't be parsimonious with professional use of antibiotics, but gluttonous with the food use of antibiotics. just doesn't make sense. It's not going to get us where we want to go. The FDA is looking at restricting the use of antibiotics, but, again, they're voluntary. Mm-hmm. And it says to people it's the right thing, but it's not the financially um, best thing for all. So we've got to find a place where we can work together.
0: Well, this is, so, we'll be looking at this in, in greater depth in the coming weeks and months um, and bringing the media industry on and getting our political officials in here as well to discuss this with Dr. Simmet and with uh, Matthew Wellington, I want to thank Dr. Tyler Simmet, who is uh, the president of the Maryland State Medical Society of uh, and a practicing physician. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Simmet, for taking time out of your busy day and your patience to talk to us. Um, thank you. means a great deal. Uh, Matthew Wellington is a campaign organizer at the Maryland Public Interest Group, Perg. Uh, and we'll be looking at this some more. And the micro will be on, the politicians will be on, and we'll continue our look at antibiotics and our food uh, in, 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 in the animals that, uh, that we consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank you both so much for taking yeah, your time. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. On Sound Bites and the Mark Steiner Show. We're going to transition with uh, John Fahey, one of my favorites, West Coast Blues, and coming right back uh, with this new controversy here locally uh, around uh, farms raising chickens in Maryland, uh, many of whom have been cited uh, by the Department of Environment for the first time. Uh, and we're going to have an interesting discussion with that with uh, one of our favorite farmers, Lee Richardson, Rainer Steinser from uh, the Center for Progress Reform, and Tim Wheeler, who writes Be More Green. We'll be right back. Stay with us. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbite. We're about to talk to Tim Wheeler, reporter for Be More Green, the Baltimore Suns environmental blog. Raina Steinser, who is president of the Center for Progress Reform, professor of law at the University of Maryland, Francis King Carey School of Law, co-author of several uh, CPR papers on various aspects of Chesapeake Bay pollution with the chicken industry and MDE's regulatory posture towards them as a principal topic. And Lee Richardson, a grain and poultry farmer and Farm Bureau member in Wicomico County. And Tim Raina and Lee, welcome. Good to have you with us.
3: Thank you. All right. you
0: hear, Mark? And y'all can join us for four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Write to us here, talk at steinershow dot org. Uh, tweet me at Mark Steiner four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Bring your thoughts to the airways. So, Tim, let me outline outline very quickly of course before I turn to Raina and Lee to, to kind of uh, um, kind of flesh this out. Um, th- this is so for the first time, one in five Maryland chicken farms have been. Uh, uh, fine by state regulators. This really has not happened in this kind of quantity before. So, t- tell me what all this really means. Well, it's um, uh, the state
4: requires uh, all the poultry farms that have large uh, flocks uh, above a certain size and in, in certain areas close to uh, to waterways. To, uh to be regulated much like uh, a business or an industry would be um, and uh, they have to have um, uh, file annual reports uh showing that they're following the regulations and explaining what they're uh, what they're doing with their uh, poultry waste uh how they're storing it how they're handling it how much is generated uh, and what uh, what ultimately happens to it um, and uh it, it would appear that um that uh, over a hundred of these uh animal feeding operations as they're known in the regulatory Lexicon uh have uh, uh filed either uh, incomplete reports for the most part or are not filed them at all for uh, for t- for 2013. Uh and what the uh, Department of Environment told me was that uh, uh they've sort of been having a little bit of trouble getting this uh, paperwork filed and and in the past they have uh, uh worked with the farmers to uh, to to sort of prod them to get the uh to, to fill in the gaps and to file the uh, missing uh, information. And um, uh, after uh, so, a year of trying in this case, they decided it was time to, uh, to start uh, issuing violation notices.
0: So Lee, Lee Richardson, let me, before I turn to Raina Steinser right after the break, to talk a bit about um, w- 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 how you respond to this. Yeah,
5: this. Um, you did say Lee. I'm sorry. I'm hearing you.
0: I'm sorry. I did say Lee. Yes, Lee Richardson. Lee. Yeah.
5: Um, Yep, I was one of the farmers, actually, that was uh, non-compliant. I received a letter and uh, kind of shocked when I started reading the letter. But then when I realized what had happened, you know, we have a form that we fill out. And you have a chart on there that you're supposed to take your manure analysis report that you get from the lab and fill this chart out. And that I did and sent the form in completed. I thought, well, in little parentheses, I missed. that at the same time, I'm also supposed to send a copy of the report. You know, duplicate copies as usual with government. And, you know, I thought my phone I had a charter that took care of that information and it did not. I had just, so when I received the letter within the same day, I made a photocopy of my report, sent it in immediately, certified mail, of course. And in fe- this was in January, and in February, I received another letter, same violation. Well, I have to call up there this time and find out what's going on. Well, after strongly urging her to look to see if it was there. In five minutes, she said, yes, sir, it is here. I, you know, so then why do I get another letter? You know, there there's seems to be, I'm, and I'm not speaking for all these violations at all. I'm sure that a large majority are in my boat that this is what happened and probably was resolved. Some of them probably received a second letter and whether they thought it was taken care of and didn't bother, and then they got a fine. I did not receive a fine, but... There seems to be a filing, a paper trail problem going to MDE. And we've, we've dealt with it since the beginning of KFO permitting, um, starting right with the NOI letters, you know, received letters. You have not sent your NOI in. I have sent it in. I have certified mail proof. <laughs> I don't know how to fix it. But
3: so
0: that's
5: what farmers I, if are dealing I could. with.
0: Raina, go ahead. Raina Steinser.
3: Yeah, I, I want, I'm, you know, sorry that um, Lee got himself into such a um, problem. Um, I've heard of this happening. Um, part of the problem is that MDE um, doesn't have enough resources. And so to pull the camera back for a minute, first I'd say that it's very important to understand that agriculture at this point contributes half of the nutrient pollution in the Bay. And we are in the midst of a fairly urgent effort to restore the bay to to some kind of health. We have a very big problem with dead zones, et cetera. One-third of animal agriculture is federally regulated, and that's the kinds of facilities we're talking about. They are covered by the Clean Water Act. And at the moment, they are being given treatment that is very special for reasons that I can't understand. So two examples, they're not paying uh, permit fees that were mandated by the legislature because, EPA, because MDE has given them a, a, a free ride on that. And I'm talking about fees as low as $120 for a small CAFO. Um, which can house up to 37,000 chickens at a time. And the second thing is they're not filing these reports. Chronically, the reports are either, uh, you know, are missing. In fact, Tim's story said that um, one in five uh, CAFOs, animal feeding operations, were not um filing their reports, and that m d e had spent a year cajoling and pleading with people to get the reports in and still couldn't manage it and only then did it enforce the law and You know I just say as an average person who uh, you know is among other things a taxpayer in maryland, i don't get uh this kind of um, exception when my uh, bill from uh, WSSC comes in or when I, um, you know, go above the speed limit or right. if I'm a small business, I don't get my fees waived. And so my question is, why Why uh, is the chicken industry so special?
0: And right, so we have to get a very quick break. I'm going to come back and kind of explore where this disconnect is and whether it is in the bureaucracy, is it in the way the system is organized, uh, what are we looking for here, and we'll wrestle with that as soon as we come back from this break. Stay with us. Welcome back. We are here with Tim Wheeler, a reporter for Be More Green, the Suns Environmental Blog, uh, Raina Steinser, who is president of the Center for Progressive Reform and professor of law at the University of Maryland, and Lee Richardson, grain and poultry farmer and Farm Bureau member and leader in Wicomico County, 410 319 is the number here. So let me very quickly, we, we have about 12 minutes or so left in this, se- in this segment, so let's get right to the heart of this. I mean, and, and Tim, very quickly, um, and then I'm going to go around the room, where does the, what are the major issues here? So Issues are that is, is this like some, there's a history of kind of constant kind of uh, warfare, for a better, or one of a better term, uh, between the state and farmers who think they're being overregulated and environmentalists and others in, in the community who think that uh, we need to have more documentation what goes into our bay so we can control it. So, I mean, it, it's a, it, and that's where the heart of it is. We're, so talk a bit about that, and then I want our two guests to come back with that.
4: Well, the uh, sort of the, the prompt for my uh, reporting on these violations, uh, uh, Mark, was that uh, the uh, the five-year uh, general permit that uh, the Department of the Environment issues to regulate the KFOs uh, or animal feeding operations uh, is up for renewal, and uh, in inquiring about that and what changes were were to be made, I uh, asked about the record of compliance and this uh, data, which has not actually been published by the department yet, uh, came out. Uh, five years ago, this was uh, you know quite the uh, quite a controversy over over regulating the farms, the poultry uh, industry, and farmers in general were up in arms and didn't uh, didn't think this was warranted, didn't uh, think it was necessary, and thought it was really uh, uh, an imposition on them. Um, and uh, and the uh, you know the environmental community, on the other hand, looking at the data from uh, uh, government uh, uh, statistics showing that uh, agriculture is the leading source of uh, nutrient and sediment pollution in the bay uh, believes that the government should be uh, uh, riding a much closer herd on these, if you will, uh, operations because they have uh, such a concentration of, uh, of manure and waste that uh, that could uh, impair the bay. Um, this time around, uh, the renewal itself seems to be going uh, uh, relatively calmly. There are issues. Uh, Rena touched on one around the fees. The Department of the Environment insists that they have adequately funded this program um, uh, through, uh, you know, moving funds around so that the uh, the fees aren't necessarily uh, needed. On the other hand, they're uh, they're at this point not ruling out uh, imposing them. They're actually in the draft regulation. Uh, The farmers uh, argue that they're, uh, uh, you know, that they're Potentially, um, you know, uh, that they're really burdensome uh, for for small farmers in particular, uh, and that it was, it's money that they could uh, could be better spent elsewhere.
0: So, so, and, and so, let me Lee, let me go to you before I come back to reading. I mean, so let's talk about this. I mean, when 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 I've talked to a lot of the the men and women in your group, I mean, there's always always a question of feeling overregulated, overburdened with paperwork. So, and if half runoff is coming from the farms that raise the chickens mostly on the shore, then what should be the response and how should we do it differently, if anything?
3: Are you asking me? No, I'm asking,
0: I'm asking Lee B. Richardson. I'm
3: sorry. As far as,
5: as far as regulation, you mean?
0: Yeah, I mean, you, uh, often what, what many people will say to me who are farmers is that we, are, we have too much paperwork. We're overregulated, uh, and then, then there's a scientific reality of what goes into the bay. So what is the solution to this? What What would you say should well, happen?
5: Well, flat out, you know, I'm I'm more of a common sense fact kind of guy. So, you know, when they sit there, you know, we always get the same preaching that half of it's coming from you know, the farms and you know, it's a buy model. And these models are being proven wrong, you know, and, and when the two thousand seventeen numbers come out, um for TMDLs and all, I think you're gonna see a big change because they've actually got factual information, you know, that's coming out from research, but of course, when we come out with some new information, it has to go through a rigorous, you know um, uh, set of study, or I mean peer reviews to get it into the work. So um, I have a little problem with that to start with. Second of all, it's paperwork. Farmers hate to do paperwork. I'm sorry. we just do. We, we spend our time outside. we're try to get work done. The last thing I want to do is come home after dark and do a bunch of paperwork. I'm sorry, it's just not what I like to do. And I know it's not what other farmers like to do. We're doing the best we can. We try to get it done. We hate it. We're against it. And really all in all, what I've seen on my farm and what has changed over the last five years or ten years, it ain't been a damn thing to do with paperwork. That paperwork has not changed one thing other than what the government knows or tried to prove to them or tell them. But it hasn't changed anything I do on my farm. I still had a nutrient management plan before, I still have one now and I still follow it. Well, and that... I tried to grow as much crop with as little as <laughs> manure or little as fertilizer as I can grow it. Because I'm in it to to make a profit, yes. I'm not here to suffer. You know, and just barely make ends meet, I'm here to make a profit too, but not at the expense of the environment.
0: So I I think that Lee makes this point here, Rayna. Let me let you jump in here. I mean, I think one point that Lee made is crystal clear is that it it hasn't changed the nature of things um, uh, and the nature of what happens to the Bay. So maybe there needs to be an alternative response of something.
3: Well, um, I don't think we've given – the TMDL is a uh, groundbreaking development, and we, haven't, we need to give it a chance to work. But let me respond directly. You know, I'm a mother, and I run a household, and I don't like to do paperwork either. I mean, every time I have an insurance claim or my kids need something for school, I've got to fill out paperwork. This is a fact of life. I think when you look uh, very clearly at what Lee is saying, he's saying, trust me. Um, I'm going to do it, and you don't need to check up on me. And this is not a realistic thing for anyone to expect in this world. Um, We all have to demonstrate to the authorities that we're doing what we were asked to do, and we have to pay the cost of um, our behavior. I pay uh, for sewage, chicken farmers should pay for the clear pollution they're contributing to the Bay. The idea that this is all a big mistake that came from shaky modeling is, is quite um, amazing to me that someone should be saying that at this late stage. Um, the Bay is in serious trouble, and it's worth billions of dollars to the Maryland economy. Not to mention being one of the most precious natural resources on Earth.
0: So, <clears throat> um, I'm curious, Tim, and then very quick, we'll, we'll wind up here. We have four minutes left in this segment, so I'll, I'll make this kind of quick from all of you. Uh, is I mean, what this kind of these finds mean, and where you think this next step takes it um, in terms of the, the farmers in MDE? Tim. And then and then settling
6: for
4: for much less or even waiving them. So we'll see if they you know actually collect these. This may have been a way of getting farmers' attention, after having tried without success to get others than Lee to to respond to those letters. Um, one of the reasons for these annual reports uh, it, it is because the state uh, only inspects about a fifth of these uh, animal feeding operations every year. I mean, so uh, uh, these impressive. reports are really. These reports are really the only way that the uh, the state has of knowing that these farms are, are what they're supposed to do. Uh, uh,
0: I, I wonder if, if if that's part of the problem very quickly. But Lee, we have three minutes left, but very quickly, Lee and then Raina, should there be more physical inspections than Lee rather than uh, uh, just paperwork?
5: Lee? Uh, my, my opinion, I have no problem. I mean, you know, I'm subject to be expect, inspected any time just like all the farms are that are capos. So, I mean, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I don't you know what they think they're going to find, but, you know, they're more than welcome to continue to do it or do more. I don't, I don't really see a problem with
0: that. Right. So, so, I mean, is, is that part of the issue? You said there was not enough money in MDE to do it. Maybe part of the thing is more physical interaction as opposed to just forms.
3: Well, I think that would be ideal. I agree with that. Um, But we have a system now where we're trying to get the industry that requires the inspections to pay the cost for the government rather than um, putting it on the general taxpayer. And that's not happening here. But I certainly agree with you that uh, physical inspections are far better um, in the absence of those that that we need paperwork, just like we do in every other walk of life. So, I mean,
0: I, we have. So, where is this going to end up? I mean, this is this, this cause, I mean, as long as I, 22 years I've been on the air here, I've been covering this and really more intensely in the last five years with sound bites. Um, and this has been an ongoing conflict. So, I'm curious very quickly to close it out, Tim, very quickly, where, where do you think this goes next?
4: Well, it's going to have to basically continue as is uh, for the time being, unless and until the, you know, uh, Lee and his uh, uh, colleagues are counting on the uh, 2017 reevaluation of the Bay TMDL to show that farms are uh, doing their share and and maybe more than their share, so they don't uh, need to be subject to all these regulations. Uh, On the other hand, uh, there are those who think that the, uh, you know, that the TMDL isn't getting to all the problems yet. And, uh, I mean, one of the, uh, one of the things that's out there that's kind of, This isn't modeling, it's actual water quality measurements. The Choptank River, uh, which is on the Delmarva Peninsula, and it's primarily a a uh, Maryland-driven watershed, uh, phosphorus levels, nutrient levels in that river are still going up, and it's primarily an an agricultural watershed as well. So So the question then is, you know, if the modeling is wrong, then why are the levels still going up there?
0: So we have to stop here, but I will like to invite the three of you back for a much longer conversation um, and and to to really kind of wrestle with this in some deeper ways when we talk about the MDL, when we talk about the PMT report coming out, uh, and more on how this will affect the future. Uh, so I really want to thank the three of you so much. Tim Wheeler, uh, Be Moore Green from the Baltimore Sun, Rena Steiner, who is president of the Center for Progressive Reform and professor of law at the University of Maryland School of Law, and Lee Richardson, who is a grain and poultry farmer and an active member of the Farm Bureau in Wicomico County. Thank the three of you so much. And look forward to a longer, more in-depth conversation time in the next month or so.
3: Thank you very thank you, much.
0: Mark. Thank you all. Thanks. You're listening here to SoundBites, produced here in Baltimore, out of WEA eighty point nine FM, the voice of the community, and broadcasted on Marble Public Radio WSTL ninety point seven FM. Uh, and we're about to hear a piece produced by former SoundBites intern Maggie Dyer and producer Mark Gunnery. They visited Hidden Harvest Farm in the Greenmount West neighborhood of Baltimore earlier this year. Enjoy.
7: I'm Mary Cadwallander. So I actually only work at Hidden Harvest one day a week. Tara, who's the main farmer, um, is not feeling well today, so she couldn't make it. Um, but Hidden Harvest is a its a production-based farm, and it's also very community-run. Nobody who works here gets paid to work here, even Tara, who's here almost every day. The production is mostly um, vegetables. Um, we have a few fruit trees that are just starting to produce. Um, We also grow a lot of flowers and herbs. Um, Tara um, knows a lot about medicinal plants um, and so she makes tinctures and that sort of thing which aren't for sale but are used by the community members who volunteer here. Um, We also have chickens and bees. Um, The chickens are taken care of by a chicken co-op who reap all the benefits of the eggs that come out of that Um, and the bees Have just been here a year, so we haven't produced any honey from them yet. Well, they're producing honey, but we haven't harvested any yet.
8: The crops that you collect here, where do you sell those? The
7: vegetables get sold um at a weekly farm stand that we have on Tuesdays from five to seven PM, just right out on Calvert Street. Um and then we also sell at the Waverly Farmers Market with the Farm Alliance at the Farm Alliance Stand and Um, we do a lot of uh, restaurant sales as well.
8: Tell me more about the flowers. Why flowers? Why are you growing flowers? Um,
7: The flowers, well, we do have one connection um, where we trade flowers um, with a restaurant um, for um, a cheese plate mostly. Um, (laughs) But mostly the flowers are just here as beneficials to attract pollinators, and now that we have the bees, the bees are really thriving off of it. We've had other, we actually have a um, another couple who volunteers at the farm who have bees on their rooftop, and they are amazed at how quickly the hives here are filling up with honey because the bees just have so much to eat out here. We have volunteers that come from MICA um, that do a, a course on um, urban agriculture and they come and work here. Um, in the spring and fall. Um, we have YouthWorks kids, I guess, um, come and work every summer. Um, and then we also will have events on the farm. Um, every 4th of July, we have a big like community celebration. Um, and then other events aren't exactly regular, but um, whenever we feel like
8: having something going on, then it'll happen. <laughs> Do you have people volunteering from the surrounding area? Yeah, most of the people
7: that volunteer here live in walking distance. And there are people, there are probably about five people who volunteer regularly, and then there are people who will just come by for the day and work for a little bit and get a bunch of greens or something to take home with them.
8: What made you decide to start working with Hidden Harvest?
7: So I actually work for the Farm Alliance, um, and it's part of my job to work with it in Harvest. But I also love coming here, and I've become a member of the chicken co-op. I was a Peace Corps volunteer um, until November of 2013, um, and I was working in agriculture. And when I came back to Baltimore after that, I realized that there was a lot of the same food security issues here. As there were in my community in Senegal, West Africa.
8: What what is the chicken co-op?
7: So there are five people who are members of the chicken cooperative. Um, we buy food for the chickens and on a rotating basis, and come and take care of the chickens on a rotating basis. So you'll have two to three morning or afternoon shifts where you have to. Come, either let the chickens out or put them in and give them food and water. And you get to pick up however many eggs are there when you come.
6: What are the issues of food security that you're talking about?
7: Mostly just like access to fresh, affordable, healthy vegetables in the city. I guess in comparison to what I was working with in Senegal, most of the people I was working with were subsistence farmers. And so they were growing their own food and couldn't grow enough. And similarly, in Baltimore City, people are working really hard and making as much money as they can and don't have enough money to afford the food that they need for their family.
8: Do you think we could walk around and kind of, like, talk about what we're seeing?
7: Sure. (laughs) So this
8: bathtub here is um,
7: where we... um, clean all the vegetables after we've harvested them before they go to whatever the sales outlets are that they're going to. Um, and then continue over here are the seed trays where um, we start a lot of our vegetables in the summertime um, to then be transplanted out to the garden. Uh, a lot of things have gotten picked over by the chickens. They've just been crazy in the last couple of weeks and have been coming and
8: stealing seeds,
7: so it looks kind of insane right now do they
8: get do they get out of the chicken pen and come over here and eat the seeds
7: yeah that's why there's that extra line of string up there is because we're trying to avoid them getting out the fence has kind of like fallen a little bit lower as the summer's gone on and um I think it's time to clip their wings
6: (laughs) what are you starting for the fall
7: this fall, I don't think we're gonna actually be putting too much more stuff in. Um, we're the soil has been kind of um, difficult this season. It's a little hard and getting in pretty clay. So as you can see, in a lot of places where there's, it looks like just like a scatter of little plants coming up. Those are that's cover crop that we're putting in in a lot of the beds. Um, we'll probably do some like root vegetables and stuff. Um, We've got some cabbage seeded, um, but we're not going to do too much into the fall this year. We're going to kind of let this be a restorative year for the farm. So, yeah, over here um, we have some watermelon. We passed by some charred and um, collard greens. The kale's mostly finished. Um, Those cucumbers are mostly finished, but you can see one hanging down. It's a little yellow circular cucumber. Um, They're called lemon cucumbers. They taste mostly like regular cucumbers, but they're a little more fun. Um, Back in this section, you can see there's some more kale up there. Um, We've got some fruit trees scattered around. Uh, Most of those are about three or four years old. Um, Been here about as long as the farm has. Um, and so a few of them are just starting to produce Um, I got to eat one tiny little peach (laughs) this summer Um, and then we also have a um, solar dryer that was donated by a friend Um, it's super easy and great for drying any fruits or vegetables or herbs that you want to Um, it's a nice alternative um, preserving method we also have some chickpeas around here which actually come into the recipe I was going to tell you guys about. Um,
6: What's your position at the Farm Alliance?
7: I am the assistant coordinator. It's an AmeriCorps position. I actually only have one week left. Um, <laughs> and yeah so I I work with um, directly with three of the farms um, on three different days of the week and then Two days a week, I spend in the office helping coordinate um, like the farmers market stuff. Um, I am the one who pays everybody out at the end of market. We have a shared EBT machine that I'm responsible for keeping track of um, and figuring out the payouts to each farm on that. We also do a double dollars program so that all of the farms in their neighborhood sales can um, sell produce to people with food stamps or any other um, food benefits for, um, like, it's basically like a two-for-one deal. So you get you pay for one bunch of chard and you get another bunch for free to that person and thanks to grant money that allows us to do that. <laughs> so the farms are still making the money off of it. So the recipe that um, we have is one of Tara's favorites: um, sliced cucumbers, um, fresh tomatoes, and chickpeas. Um, it's especially really nice if you have fresh chickpeas that you don't that don't come from the can, um, and you don't even have to boil because they're just fresh and ripe and haven't dried out yet. Um, and then you can add in um, just like fresh onion and salt and pepper cumin and coriander are really good in there if you like it spicy you can add some spice to it if you've got fresh basil or
8: mint that goes in really well do you have chickens that are like more social than other chickens
7: yes there is one chicken um who is referred to as the lap chicken because will he will you'll literally come and sit in your lap um, <laughs> they're super friendly they're, we um, the older girls especially are really friendly um, the new chicks which it's hard to tell anymore that they're younger because they're nearly the same size um, but they're a little more afraid of people and I think it's probably also because they're just lower down in the pecking order and they're generally afraid of everything um, but yeah they're They're super friendly. Sometimes it's not very good because they'll come and snatch food out of people's hands. (laughs) Um, But they're also really sweet, and it's really fun when, like, kids come by and stuff and can, like, really, like, pet a chicken and not have to be afraid of it, Um, which is especially neat in the city when people have never seen any farm animals and mostly just seen cats and dogs, (laughs) so they're very social they're very responsive um to people um when they're hungry they'll just literally follow you around in a little flock like you're the what the head mama do you- what do you feed them um we buy a organic pellet feed from hal over in hamden actually um yeah um so we just take Take turns. Um, There's like a little, put a star next to the next person's name when it's their time to buy feed.
6: What's the history of this lot?
7: Um, So we have it as an adopt a lot. Um, I think for years before it had just been kind of abandoned green space. Um, I don't know what was here before that.
6: How do you feel in general about farming in the city? Are there other kind of regulations that make it difficult? Are there issues with the city that make it easier, like the adopt-a-lot? Like, what's your general sense of that?
7: Generally, I think it's getting easier with the um, new urban ag laws that are coming up um, from the Office of Sustainability. Um, Is that
6: that a Maryland thing or a national thing?
7: It's a Baltimore City um, thing. Um, They're going to... Make a lot of city-owned lots um, uh, like up for lease for I it's something like a hundred dollars a year or something. It's um, really affordable. Um, I think that urban farming is important for people to have access um, to not only like very local food but also to um, to the process of growing your food and having access to green space. Um, there are lots of health benefits, not just in eating the fresh vegetables, but also in farming and being outside. Um, and I think that's really important that people get educated on that. Um, and at the same time, Baltimore doesn't have enough land to really sustain itself within the city. Um, so it's it's important, and I'm glad that the city is um, kind of supporting, supporting the use of the land where we have it. Um, but it's not, it's not the answer to our whole food system problem.
0: That was Mary Callwander of the Hidden Harvest Farm, an urban farm in the Greenmount West neighborhood of Baltimore. You also heard from Soundbites intern Maggie Dyer and our producer, Mark Gunnery. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Marvel Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our intern is Sianna Greaves. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. And to hear this show and podcast any of our past shows and hear additional interviews and information about our guests, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download all of our podcasts on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSTL 90.7 FM to Marvel Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.